everyone, and welcome back to Tina's Wish Empower You series. I'm your host, Karen Mills, comedian for over 25 years and two times ovarian cancer survivor. I'm here with Dr. Gazelka David-West, gynecologic oncologist and lead singer of the band NED for the next installment of our Ovarian Cancer 101 series. The Tina's Wish Empower You series aims to educate and empower women and all people with ovaries in relation to their gynecologic health. Knowledge is power, and we welcome everyone to join us on this inclusive journey. Today, we'll be talking about what puts someone at a higher risk for ovarian cancer and the steps you can take to reduce that risk. You know, uh, for me, it really wasn't even on my radar. And, uh, and I had, you know, I had no idea that I was at risk for ovarian cancer. In fact, I didn't even think I was at risk for cancer. I mean, it's not my history. Um, no one in my family, I mean, we've had, I have, I had an uncle with skin cancer and I had, uh, an aunt with, uh, breast cancer, but, you know, I have a big family. Nobody else has ever had any cancer risk and um, cancer uh, occurrences. So I really never even considered that because I put so much stock in genetics. And I learned quickly that um, that you can still have a high risk for um, for ovarian cancer and I'm sure other cancers as well, whether or not you're, it's your family history or not. Is that correct, doctor? Correct. Yeah. So um, family history definitely plays a major role in it, um, but um, there can be um, some genetic predisposition that maybe doesn't come up until the person um, presenting with the cancer. You know, you could be the first one in the family, right? Yes, that's what I was thinking. You know, I, I, I just feel like I thought, well, it couldn't be that, you know, mm -hmm. because my mom had a um, had a had a benign tumor years ago. So I immediately, when, when they said I had a tumor, uh, right. I thought there's no way it's just like she had, it's a fibroid sure. just like she had. And, it, and so I was shocked because mm -hmm. my family, we, you know, we don't get cancer. We eat gravy and biscuits for 50 years, clog our arteries and have strokes. So that's what we do. <laughs> that's what you were preventing. That's what you were trying to focus on prevention for, right? Yep. Not sure. cancer. But you're, but you're absolutely right. And those are the more common things. You know, if you, the number one killer of women, heart disease, you know, this is, these are the things that um, uh, are kind of it we were reminded of and being told of, you know, protect your heart and eat healthy exercise. Um, so yeah, ovarian cancer may not be on your radar at all. And the general population risk for ovarian cancer is quite low. It's at a, uh, around 1.4%. So, you know, it's really not something that really is that common, but when it does come up, it is deadly and it's important to know what risk factors there are. And I also, um, I have not been married. I've not had children. And does that also up my risk? I've, I've heard that it does. Yes. Well, the not having kids part, but the not being married part doesn't. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that might increase your risk because of stress and stuff. Who knows? <laughs> that takes some stress down. Yeah. <laughs> that, might be, that might be balanced things out for you. But um, but yes, you, you highlighted on some of the risk factors that you had personally and that are risk factors, non-childbearing or not ever having children. 
Um, other risk factors are, let's say, um, use, use of fertility drugs or maybe a history of infertility can be a risk factor. Hormone replacement therapy can be a risk factor. Um, age, older the age you are, the higher the risk of any cancer development. Um, and then um, obesity. Obesity has is a inf chronic inflammation state. Chronic inflammation, chronic stress in the body is a risk for cancer in general. And then we and then we go go to the history, the family history that we touched on, right? So family history is a big one. You know, there may not be a genetic marker, but if there's a strong family history, that can clue you into are you somebody at risk? And then there is a patient uh, population, uh, the Ashkenazi Jewish population um, in the world are significantly higher risk for ovarian cancer. Isn't that interesting that one group of people have such a higher risk? But what about um, the BRCA gene? Like if you have um, breast cancer, but you haven't had any uh, ovarian cancer, say in your family, but you carry that gene, then that is a, puts you at a higher risk, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we can talk about that, right? So um, this is where kind of knowing your risk, knowing family history may then lead you to a genetics counselor, somebody who will counsel you and tell you what are, how high percentage risks you may have given your family history, um, and then recommend genetic testing. And the genetic testing is where we find genes such as the BRCA gene. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the most commonly associated with breast and ovarian cancer. There are others, we won't go into all those details, but BRCA1 and 2 are the most common um, with um, up to 40% risk with the BRCA1 and, the, and up to 20% risk with BRCA2. And that's risk for ovarian cancer with those genes. This is like uh, with Angelina Jolie, you know, she had that gene and so she had the mastectomy, she had ovaries removed. I mean, is that something that is recommended? Yep. So our governing bodies do have guidelines that we follow um, regarding these genetic uh, mutations. And so um, as we talked about in our first episode, screening and early detection, there's no good test or screening for the general population. But once we know you are high risk with one of these high risk gene mutations, then we do have a protocol. We do have for the younger patients um, who are not ready to perform these risk-reducing surgeries. There are certain screenings that we do with pelvic ultrasound and that CA125 that we mentioned. And that trend of those tests will clue us in to, is there something early evolving? Is there something more advanced evolving? And so it's not a perfect test at all, but it gives us something to follow these high-risk patients with. Um, then in the patients who are ready for risk-reducing surgery, we do recommend the tubes and ovaries get removed. And so that's a procedure called a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. I thought so. There, huh? I thought that's what it was called. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> but removal of tubes and ovaries is good enough, right? So, um, and so our guidelines state that by age 35 or when you're done with childbearing, and you harbor a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, the recommendation is to remove the tubes and ovaries to prevent ovarian cancer. Well, um, and age-wise, is is most uh, ovarian cancer, does most of that occur uh, at menopause or perimenopause? Or is there, I have heard of people getting it really young. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So um, uh, for the general population, um, the patients who present as spontaneous, spontaneous ovarian cancer, no genetic risk, we tend to see it in the age 60s and up. That's the most common age group. Um, when you harbor a genetic mutation like BRCA1, it's a lot earlier, 35, 40 years old or in your 40s, you can develop ovarian cancer. For BRCA2, it's a little bit more in like the eight in the 50s. Um, age range, 50s to 60s. And so when we make these guidelines recommending these risk-reducing surgeries, 35, age 35 is kind of the number we use, but it's really geared towards those BRCA1 patients because they are so much higher risk, up to 40% risk of developing ovarian cancer at that earlier age bracket. BRCA2 carriers, they, um, we, you know, you can kind of push that age limit along a bit because we know if they're going to get ovarian cancer, it's more likely to happen in the 50s age bracket. Um, but age does, it does make a difference. I was 54 when I first, was first diagnosed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know that estrogen is also so important for your heart and other things. And, but you can't really take much estrogen beyond, I mean, after ovarian cancer, right? And so I will say that it, it gets into a little bit more granular discussion, but it's all kind of dependent on the type of ovarian cancer that you had, the cell type, if there was hormone receptors on it or not. There's some young women, let's say they had an ovarian cancer in their 30s and they had to have ovaries removed, which puts you into menopause definitively, right? That's why it's a very big deal for young women to have these risk-reducing surgeries, right? You're going to go into menopause. So it's it's hard pill to swallow ovarian cancer, super high risk, or the reality of menopause at 35. So it's very hard. Um, and so, again, depending on what type of cells were found at the ovarian cancer, and if you're young, um, it's a conversation with your doctor, weigh risks, benefits. And we have put patients on estrogen after an ovarian cancer diagnosis if they're very young and if they were the right candidate, right? Because like you said, heart health, bone health, mental health, you know, <laughs> these are things that our estrogen is so important for. I am on a very low dose, mm -hmm. but you know, because of my, of heart health, basically. Yeah, was, right. And then again, likely your cancer cell type was not driven by estrogen. So you're um, likely, you know, a good candidate for that. And it makes sense. How, uh, how important uh, do you feel diet is in all of this? Um, so I wish I had more education on diet and nutrition in our training. But as, as I go through my um, career now, I learn more and more. And uh, we work with excellent nutritionists who do a lot of cancer nutrition counseling. Uh, but my general rule of thumb with patients is eat the rainbow, meaning high, um, high protein, more vegetable protein, um, colorful vegetables and fruits, things that are have more nutritional value, right? The blander the plate the less nutrition that you're seeing on that plate. Um, and I think um, trying to minimize inflammation, right? Um, and so the types of things that you eat, what is causing inflammation? Um, low sugar is better than high sugar, right? Low fat is better than high fat. These are just like the basic tenets and principles. And then getting into nitty gritties of the diet, um, I leave that to the professionals. Right. Well, I, uh, I, and this is just something I feel personally, I, I haven't had a professional say this to me necessarily, but I've been a, a road comic for, you know, 29 years. And I, um, 
early on, particularly, I ate a lot of fast food because it was cheap. And at that time, I, that's what I could afford. And, um, and as a result, I just feel like everything jacked up with hormones and everything else. I just feel like that it contributed. I just, I just do. You can't deny that there's got to be a link. There's got to be some correlation. It's, um, we don't just to do the study to test fast food and ovarian cancer. You'd need a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody would sign up for that study either. Oh, that's true. Um, but, uh, and I also, uh, was recently, um, diagnosed with an autoimmune that my understanding is occurs a lot with ovarian cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that something you, uh, you have to deal with, with your patients a lot or, or you do see that very often? Yeah. So, um, I've seen it a, a handful of times. I will say it's, um, uh, the times I've seen it was at onset of the disease, right? Like at presentation, they it coupled with some kind of autoimmune condition. And when we treated the disease, that autoimmune condition subsided. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it can also be something that may come up as a consequence of the treatment that you get. Certain, certain chemotherapies or maintenance therapies can create these autoimmune conditions. And then we see that later on, like these, when we have long-term survivors, you kind of end up seeing a lot of these, um, these sort of things pop up that you wouldn't expect. And, and once you, uh, you go through the hysterectomy and everything, I mean, is hormone replacement an option, not an option? So that's a great question. So, um, so I would say the easy answer is yes, it's an option. It's it just requires a conversation and evaluation of risk assessment. So let's just talk about the BRCA mutation carriers, for example. Um, let's say this patient has had the mastectomy, right? Um, so they have risk reduction for breast cancer, and now they want to proceed with their total hysterectomy and um, tubes and ovaries out. Um, that patient... If they're premenopausal, yes, they can um, get on some hormone replacement therapy. And in that case, because the uterus has been removed, they can just have estrogen alone. And estrogen alone is much safer than estrogen plus progesterone when you're doing hormone replacement. Um, lower risk of um, side effects are, are blood clot risk or cancer risk when you just have the one with estrogen. Um, there are some patients who maybe still have their breasts or the BRCA patients who have a diagnosis of breast cancer already, they unfortunately cannot get the hormone replacement, especially if their breast cancer was hormone positive, right? So it really, it's a discussion. It's in figuring out, you know, your risk category. If the uterus was left in, then you have to do progesterone with the estrogen because now estrogen alone on the uterus is a risk for uterus cancer. So lots of conversation, lots of um, really looking at the patient as a whole to then figure out really what's the benefit we can achieve with this hormone replacement, what's the risk. And I always tell patients it's an up and down, but we want to make sure the, the benefit is higher and the risk is lower. And it's really something you need to, a personal um, yeah. situation with your doctor that you have to absolutely work. absolutely there's some women who they just are afraid of the idea of hormone replacement and so then i discuss alternatives it's important to know that there are non-hormonal options for the symptoms that um, patients can and will experience with menopause 
So is it fair to say that the majority of people diagnosed with ovarian cancer do not even have a genetic variant? Correct. Yeah. So I listened to a podcast some time ago about kind of genetics and how we're so focused on genetics and cancer. And the person speaking was like, well, you know what? Not e majority of cancers are not even related to genetics. So we've got to think about the environment. We've got to think about other things. And he was right. Really only about 25% of ovarian cancer is genetically linked. So we're dealing with 75% of our population that we don't know why they are getting ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. um, I think we focus so much on genetics because we can do something about it, right? We can help prevent this deadly disease with intervention. Or if you're diagnosed with ovarian cancer and have these genetic mutations, we know that certain medicines will work better for you, right? So this is why there's so much focus and attention because we have things that we can do to help that population. So why not? If, Knowledge is power. If you know more, you can get more information that could help you get it. Go out there and seek seek it out. Um, uh, meet with a genetics counselor. Um, and if you are a candidate for genetic testing, then you will get tested. It's a very easy process. And what other ways are there to for a person to reduce the, uh, her risk, their risk of, uh, of ovarian cancer? Right. So, um, um, Believe it or not, even though we were talking about hormones and the good and bad, hormonal birth control is actually a preventative mechanism, right? So hormonal birth control, when you're young, you go on birth control pills, it puts your ovaries in this quiescent or suppressed state, right? And one of the theories of ovarian cancer is that this constant ovulation and um, um, division of cells, division and breakdown of cells at that, at the, in these ovaries can be uh, priming an environment where cells can get out of control, right? They can, they're overacting or they're rapidly dividing. Mutations can occur. The checkpoints that our DNA have may miss a mutation and then that's, that's it. That's what turns into cancer. So birth control puts your ovaries in a suppressed state and really I think um, 10 years of birth control um, really is a dramatic decrease in the ovarian cancer risk. So that's one. And then preventative surgery that we talked a lot about. Um, you know, I have many patients who will come to me with a strong family history. Their mother had ovarian cancer, mm -hmm. um, but she was genetic tested negative. The patient is genetic tested negative, but now she's approaching menopause and is and says, you know what? I just want these ovaries out. I don't want to risk it. My mom was 52 and I'm 49. Let's just take them out. Right. So preventive surgery is definitely the recommendation for the patients with BRCA mutations. But then strong family history can also be a reason to have a preventative surgery. And, and how do you find a genetic counselor if you feel like you need one? And what, what exactly do they do? Sure. So um, speaking with your primary care doctor or with your gynecologist, um, really any of your doctors could um, plug you in. Uh, I work at the cancer center here with Northwell. And so we have the genetics counselors built into our practice. And so it's very easy for us to just um, send a referral, but it's really a referral through your doctor. And um, they do a very comprehensive review of your family tree and really um, assess your risk categories, right? And if you don't really meet criteria, could you pay out of pocket for genetic testing? Sure, you can. You can do whatever you want. Um, 
but if you wanted your insurance to cover it, it has, you have to meet a certain criteria to then get it covered and then get the testing. Okay. Well, um, you know, so, so much great information. You know, any other remarks you have regarding this topic before we move on? I think uh, kind of the take home or the reminder here, I think it's a big one is family history or just knowing your own personal history, right? Knowing what in your personal history puts you at risk and keeping that at the forefront of your discussions with your doctors. If you have certain risk factors that we had mentioned and you start having these vague symptoms that we discussed, bring that to your doctor and say, listen, I have this family history or I've never had kids, you know, I, I've had fertility drug treatment. Now I'm having bloating, I'm having pelvic pressure, I'm having these urinary symptoms. What's going on? Could this be ovarian cancer? Could, there, could I be at higher risk, right? And so that may help clue in um, and clinch a diagnosis sooner than later. And if it does just turn out to be menopause, then good for you. But That's if, right. Exactly. Yeah. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for your words of expertise. And a big thank you to everyone listening. We hope you all feel more empowered to take control of your health. Tune in for our uh, final episode in our Ovarian Cancer 101 series as we discuss why early detection is so critical to fighting ovarian cancer. To learn more about your gynecologic health, visit tinaswish.org backslash empower you. That's tinaswish.org, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-U. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>